Get the latest news at the click of a button inside your car. The new Bloomberg Business app, now featuring Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Listen to all your favorite Bloomberg radio stations and podcasts, including Bloomberg Surveillance, plus the latest news all on your dashboard. It's, it's free and easy to use. Just download the Bloomberg Business app on your smartphone and connect the phone to your car. The Bloomberg Business app, now with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto features. Download it free in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Jillian Emanuel joins us around the table. Chief Equity. Strategist over at Evercore Outside. Gillian, good morning to you. Good morning. Have you been participating in this wonderful, beautiful thing that is an eight-day winning streak? Yeah, we have. Uh, You know, several weeks ago, we just felt that when you backed off of that 5% yield, and I know we've been talking about it, but it is the fact that in this world now, for the last year and a half, where stocks and bonds have been positive car correlated. If bond yields go down, stocks go up. And and backing off of 5% was huge for the psychology. And now we've got this unexpected oil price plunge, which is even bigger for uh, shareholders. I'm with you. Those two points yesterday stood out for me. Break of 450 on a 10-year, break of 80 on Brent crude. At what point do these correlations start to break the other way? What brings about that change? Well, we, th- we are watching that very closely. And guess what? The high-frequency data is really important because that chart you were talking about a few moments ago with the unemployment rate rising from 3.4 to 3.9, in the past, when that starts to happen, it tends to snowball. But where we're going to get the initial read on that is that 8.30 jobless claims number. Starts edging over 250,000. We get a little bit cautious. 300,000 is where we know the economy is going to turn down. I'm supposed to fold in now a question on Ed Hyman's Hicksian ISLM theory and his disinflation theory into your stock babble. Forget about it. I love the single sentence you have, which pushes against all that malarkey by saying price is paramount right now. When you talk to Ed Hyman, how does he respond to you telling him your economics doesn't matter, price is paramount? I'll tell you how. Five weeks ago, Ed Hyman started putting out in almost daily the fact that gasoline prices started falling. As the conflict was erupting, you already had the turn in gasoline prices completely, you know, <clears throat> devoid of, of real How sort of sense. How can we have prosperity with Hyman's disinflationary tendency or outright deflation in China? Look, if, if you look at the last 15 years, you've had episodic times of that from, again, Obviously, the financial crisis was one of those times. But ultimately, what it comes back to again for equity investors, for bond investors, first of all, the whole idea of getting a real return on money in this world now is actually a positive for financial assets. It's a positive for capital allocation. And long term, it's a positive for growth. And that's, you know, that's part of the equity investing mindset. Do you need a long term view right now or do you just trade the short term? 
it's really difficult to have a long-term view because of, of what we're talking about, the inflection in the economy uh, potentially happening. But if you take the super long-term view is that even if you get the recession that Ed's thinking we're going to get, that it's going to be mild in 2024, what you're left with is a labor market that has rebalanced. What you're left with is, again, a real cost of money, better capital allocation. And frankly, we've talked about this before. You have new technological developments like generative AI that is going to improve the productivity of corporate America over the long term. One of the main frustrations of this year was that pretty much everything everyone said at the beginning of the year has proven to be wrong, including <laughs> that this would be the year that tech stocks would fade uh, more meaningfully and you'd start to see a broadening out in the rally. Energy stocks would start to be the true leaders. You just actually moved away from an overweight in energy and are talking more about generative AI. It seems like the theme just keeps on being that the leaders will keep leading and everything else will just have to figure out where they fit in. Well, it, look, again, the recession will probably, you know, to the extent that it does arrive in the next 12 months or so, rationalize some of this. But ultimately, what it's going to do, and, and look, part of the consternation on equity investors' uh, minds is the fact that the Russell 2000 is making new lows. Ultimately, you're going to get to a point where there will be an attractive price for the other 493 stocks away from the Magnificent Seven, and you will get to an earnings reset. We think that's part of next year's narrative. This is the difficult question I think people have got to confront at the moment. Do I want to buy the recovery to the recession I've not had yet? Given the damage we've seen in the small caps, you can pick up various places that back up the consumer discretionary story, airlines, for instance, which have come way off the peak back in the summer. Do I want to start picking up the pieces going into what could be a slowdown next year? We think you need to be balanced. It's one of those things where, again, given the lack of visibility into next year, what we always say, we've had a very nice run uh, in recent weeks. And if you go back over the last year, it's been a very nice run off the October lows. You need to be comfortable with the fact that if the market comes in 10 or 15 percent, which it does in any typical year, as it did several weeks ago, that you're a buyer of the dips. And whatever that asset allocation is to you, that's the kind of discipline you need to employ. Goldman speak to this as well. We've gone through their note this morning a few times. It's worth doing it again. The hard part's over. More disinflation is in store over the next year. On growth, they see limited risk of a recession. And they say this on central bank policy. Then this is a really, really interesting point. An increased willingness of central banks to deliver insurance cuts if growth slows. Earlier this week, Ben Lader on this program of eToro was saying the Fed put was back. Lisa and I looked at each other and almost spat out our water. The Fed put is back. Insurance cuts if growth slows. Is the old Fed story returning? No. Why are they wrong? No. Look, because there is an assumption that there is a reflex reaction to a minus, you know, GDP quarter. Thankfully, we didn't see it in 2022 when we had that, because if you had interrupted the rate hiking program, you wouldn't have gotten to where you are. And you can argue uh, both sides of this case. But frankly, for us, there is a commitment, given the fact that uh, core PCE is still solidly with a three-handle, that you just can't go down that road unless it really looks like there's a severe economic downturn. And we still think there's enough savings uh, left over, so that won't be the case. Julian, awesome as always. Julian Emmanuel of Evercourt. Joining us now to brief off the GOP debate last night, 
Gregory Vallier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, I stood on the floor of the GOP convention of 2004, and it was a different Republican Party. George Bush Jr. wanted a more hopeful America. What's going to be that slogan this summer for the Republicans? Well, I think they'll emphasize the economy. They'll state that Biden has not done a good job. Frankly, I would disagree. But I I think that they'll make it more about the economy than anything else. The really intriguing issues are abortion, number one. Yeah. And, num and, num and number two, how much more involved are we going to get in Ukraine and Israel? What about the idea that they're losing elections, not doing as well in certain elections? It can be the mix of that we just saw. It can be from a year ago, November, et cetera. How do they start winning again? Well, I don't think you talk like Ramaswamy. I, I think he talked himself off the boat last night. I don't see much of a future for him, probably not much of a future for uh, Tim Scott. So it, it's it's dwindling. You've really only got three challengers. Uh, DeSantis, who was okay last night, but made a strategic error. He didn't mention the governor of Iowa had endorsed him. I can't believe he didn't talk about that. And then you've got uh, Nikki Haley, who'll stick around for a while, maybe Chris Christie, but we'll begin off at 2024, I think with just two challengers to Trump. And that would be uh, DeSantis and Haley. Do you think either of them have a chance of taking Trump off the ticket? That who would? Either of them. Oh, no, and not, not at all. I mean, Trump would have to do something really egregious, and he's pretty much uh, filled, filled the role on that uh, for the last couple of years. So, no, I, I don't see anything, you know, barring a health issue that will keep Trump from being the nominee. Meanwhile, President Biden is going to meet with the UAW uh, leader today, and there's a real question of what he can do to shore up the image of Bidenomics, of what's happened in the economy, which some people are saying on paper doesn't look so bad, yet in practice has a lot of people feeling uh, like they want something different. Well, it's a good question, Lisa. I'm told that in within the White House, Trump, uh, Biden is angry. He feels he's done a pretty good job in the economy and gets no credit. So he's going to hit the road and try to make his case. The problem is an awful lot of Americans fear that we're not out of the woods and there's still more inflation threats, food, gasoline right. still to come. Uh, Greg, Valier 101, folks, this is a great <laughs> course to take in politics. You get it off the back of a matchbook. You can take Valier 101. Greg, your Valier 101 is fiscal issues at the day of the election don't yep. matter. Are you telling me the debt and the deficit don't matter the first Tuesday of November? Well, when you look at net interest costs, you look at borrowing costs, this is becoming a major crisis for the bond market. And there's no mood in Congress whatsoever to dramatically cut the deficit. However, I think that once we get through Labor Day of this coming year, this stuff will be irrelevant. I think attitudes harden during the summer. Yep. If, if Trump is well ahead, he could pull this out. But I have a feeling that Biden will will uh, come back. I have a feeling that the Democrats all of a sudden are motivated because of what happened in Kentucky. Is the path of least resistance for the former president another tax cut? That's going to be on the agenda. You're absolutely right, Tom. And I think with the Senate probably flipping and the House probably flipping, uh, you're going to have a climate that will be ripe for a huge argument on whether we extend the Trump 
tax cuts. I think we will. I think Trump will talk about tax cutting, even though the deficit is enormous. Greg, I have to wonder whether this time is different. A lot of people who come on the show will say dysfunction in Washington, D.C. is the reason why yields have been flipping and flopping and going all over the place. And then they talk about a potential government shutdown and say markets won't care. Have we reached the point where market dysfunction is going to result from political dysfunction in D.C. in a more material way? Well, we're going to see probably another alleged crisis on November 17th if there's no budget. I don't think the markets will be all that concerned about it. I do worry about the credit agencies, you know, Fitch, S&P, uh, downgrading U.S. debt, not just because of the size of our debt, but because things are so dysfunctional in getting a budget. Great to catch up, Greg. Appreciate your input. Greg Vallier of AGF Investments going into next year. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Cameron Dawson is at Merengue and Emanuel. Are you a confirmed uh, bull, Cameron? I think that given the setup into year end, we can expect some kind of Santa Claus rally just because of tax loss dynamics into the end of the year. The largest weights in the index are up the most this year, which means that you don't have eager sellers to recognize tax gains. This is very different than last year where the largest weights in the index were down a lot. People sold them and you effectively puked into the end of the year. Okay, you what? You, it's the proverbial puke into the end of the year. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, can we say that on radio? We just did. We just yeah. did. <laughs> Cameron, seriously, are Warner Brothers Discovery yesterday puked, as you call it. Okay. How is that handled by tax loss selling? Well, I think that it will magnify as we go into the end of the year. You look at the areas that are down the most. This is small caps. This is cyclicals. This is healthcare. some of your defensives. These are the areas where people are looking for tax loss harvesting opportunities. The key point, though, is that there's smaller weights in the index or they're not part of the index. So when we, when we just look at the S&P 500, that could be something that supports it into end year. So help me here. Am I buying the index, the S&P 500? And am I looking for buying opportunities in small caps, the financial? 
financials, things that have struggled? What am I doing? I think that you have to look for opportunities and things that have struggled as you go into 2024, because we know that pain trades usually are reversal trades in leadership. And just at the point where everybody throws in the towel and says, well, you can't own anything but the Magnificent Seven. These are the names that give you optionality on AI and they have the best earnings growth. Everybody crowds into them. That's typically the moment that that's when they start to lag. And so I think we have to have the imagination that other things could do well in 2024 other than just the narrow leadership that we've had this year. Torsten Slock of Apollo is writing questions for us this morning. This is the question he's asking in his most recent note. Everyone who's bullish on equities and lower rated credit should ask themselves where they think the labor market will be in three months with the Fed on hold and not showing any signs of cutting anytime soon. (laughs) What's your labor market bet with that in mind? We are having the ultimate debate is if we're seeing normalization or we're seeing weakening. And the challenge is that normalization is usually the gateway drug to weakening, meaning that you see a little easing that turns into a lot of easing, but we're not yet seeing definitive data yet to say that the uplift we've had in unemployment is going to barrel higher. The key thing to remember though, the Fed itself in its SEP, the summary economic projections, has unemployment going to 4.1% next year, and they're not forecasting a recession. So that's going to be a key question of if we get that 4.1%, does that justify them easing policy? Is it okay to sort of say, we don't care for now? Down the line, whatever happens will happen. In the meantime, we can dance in the head of a pin Mm -hmm. with oil prices coming off, yields coming lower, and risk appetite still available. Yeah, because if we think going into CPI next week, remember that gasoline prices are down 10% over the month of October. That's very different over the summer months where gas prices were up a lot. It pinched consumer spending maybe a little bit at the margin. So that does create this beneficial environment. But I think it's important to remember 2022, we priced in the earnings recession in 2023. 23, we priced in the earnings recovery in 24. What are we going to price in in 2024 as we look to 2025? Are we still confident that this entire economic setup can remain very strong, that unemployment won't be an issue, consumer spending can remain robust? Given the lack of certainty around some of the outcomes, the potential outcomes with the economy, How nimble are you remaining? How are you remaining nimble to be able to adjust quickly? I think we have to remain completely nimble. We saw that over the last couple of weeks where we went from deeply oversold to deeply over, to to getting close to being overbought. It means that technicals become really important. We can't get too lodged into narratives because narratives would have told you everything's (laughs) ending back a couple of weeks ago, be scared. Now the narratives are saying everything is fantastic. The thing is that we are at resistance when we look at technical levels. 4,400, very important for the S&P 500, 4.5%, very important support for the 10-year. How we interact with those those resistance and support levels will be very indicative of the next couple of months. Speak to the people who listened to you and said, okay, I'm really nervous, but I'm going to participate in this market. And they own tech, which literally on an hourly basis has a bid right now. What's the character of that bid on the Magnificent Seven? Well, it's extraordinarily strong, but then think about the difference in the setup. 
Going into 2022, <clears throat> Magnificent Seven earnings had been cut by about 20% over the course of the year. Now going into 2023, over the course of 23, Magnificent Seven earnings had been revised higher by 60, 70% on average because of the better growth that they've had. So it's a much higher bar. And I think that's where the discipline is, is not trying to extrapolate too much of the experience of 23, get too crowded, and instead look for opportunities in areas that might be more left behind. You've been talking, Cameron, about how difficult it is to follow the mood because it swings so uh, so massively from week to week. How much has the move that we've seen in yields underpinned your conviction that you can lean into the rally heading into year end? It certainly has helped. We've seen it play out in the valuation, and now valuations are back to about 18 and a half times earnings. The question is, is that the right valuation, even given where yields are at four and a half percent, where that equity risk premium is? The challenge with valuations, though, is they are terrible timing tools, and that they have no predictive power on a one-year forward basis. So we can look at the market and say, hey, it's expensive here, expensive there, but that may not actually show up in price action, for two, three, four years. And that's where the, that discipline of not chasing very high valuations comes in when you have a longer holding period. You've got breaking news, TK, on donuts. Is that where you want to go? Don't I, plural. <clears throat> Don't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the Long news? ago and far away, the way a prime broker attracted a hedge fund was is donuts. we can get you <laughs> shares of Krispy Kreme to short. There's a, in, in the East Coast particularly, and the right. Krispy Kreme's more Southern thing, and they're a different Donai than what you get from Dunkin' Donuts, which is, you know, they're, they're, there's cultures here, John. It's like, it's like Greg's, but it's like American. Okay. All of a sudden, Krispy Kreme, nice video. On radio, you are missing the making of the magnificent. And the answer here is Krispy Kreme is looking for a partnership with McDonald's, John Tower out with this, and it's a mixed story of EBITDA at there, but John Tower at Citigroup says first bite on DNUT. It's a McDonald's partnership that we may see. Do you know what you don't know? And I know this story already because Bramo shared it with me before. Bramo breaking into the news industry in Fargo years and years ago uh -huh. for the first Krispy Kreme shop. <laughs> True story. True story. True story. True story. True story. I covered it and people lined up. They camped out overnight to yeah. get the first so Krispy Kreme Bramo donut. went to interview them. You can imagine how Bramo was, yeah. what Bramo was like in local news, right? <laughs> Wait, I thought, <laughs> I I thought this was local news. Was there, this like, was please. Just go and do a fluff yeah, piece, yeah. please, Lisa. And I was like, it's please. an investive piece. What are they doing with that money? And how clean are the facilities? Unreal. Bramo it, and Fargo. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm enough of a Dunkin' Donut, which I, Krispy Kreme is just too sugary and sweet. Like Cameron Dawson, help us out here. Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' She's Donuts? She's never had a donut. There is nothing better than a hot, fresh Krispy Kreme donut Ooh. straight from the fryer. Nothing go. better. All right, they're screaming at me. Get in the control room. Sot that, please. Let's be sure. <laughs> We're running at 9 o'clock today. Look for Cameron Dawson on Krispy Kreme Donut. What you need to know is it's April of 2011. There was a show then, Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming, was the first episode. And that's where we are right now with the screaming success in days of Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix. I'm watching it. I can't say enough about the shocking beauty of it. It is overwhelming how it is game-changing for streaming. Geetha Raghunathan knows this. She's U.S. media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And I would suggest Disney knows this as well. Geetha, boy, does Disney need a blue-eyed samurai. 
They certainly do. And that's one thing, Tom, that Bob Iger really emphasized yesterday. He said he is looking to reinvent the studio. Those are the words he used, and he really emphasized quality over quantity. So you spoke about how spectacular Blue-Eyed Samurai is. That's exactly what Disney is going to go after. Uh, you know, they talked about uh, you know the studio having some kind of franchise fatigue, too many TV series uh, created for the streaming service. So they're really kind of streaming down or, or cutting down, I would say, bearing down on a lot of the content costs. Um, you know, Lisa was talking about where those savings right. are going to come from. A lot of that is just really cutting down on content costs. So they took down content costs from 30 billion to 27 billion for fiscal 2023. They're taking that down further to 25 billion. And that is where you get that big, big free cash flow number for them as well. $8 billion is what they're projecting for 2024, a 60% increase right. from this year. Now, I get it. It's anime. It's, it's animation. But the basic idea is Blue-Eyed Samurai is as non-diversity as we could get in 2023. Is Disney moving on from the tone and temperament of the last three or four years? Is Iger going back to something or new to something different? I think it's a, it's a combination of everything, uh, Tom, because, you know, he needs to go back to the drawing board. He knows that there hasn't really been a new Star Wars or, or a Lucasfilm movie uh, since 2019. Obviously, the Marvels is in its next uh, kind of iteration, if you will. So there's a lot of things that he needs to do. But the biggest thing, I think, for them, for the Disney studio, and, and this has kind of been a little bit shocking, and you bring up animation, and that's a really good point, because a lot of their recent animated movies have actually not performed as well as, you know, some of us would have expected. And Pixar has kind of been, you know, has had kind of this string of misfires, if you will. And the studio that is really kind of giving them a run for the money is is universal with Illumination. We had, you know, you have Super Mario, you had Minions, all of these animated movies from Universal doing really, really well. So Disney obviously going back to the drawing board and kind of uh, doing a lot of rethinking and, and as Bob Iger said, reinventing the, the whole franchise. If Bob Iger was the movie, is this Nightmare the sequel? <laughs> that's that's a great... It's not going uh, that, well, Geetha, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, he tried his best. And, and if, if there is, you know, any person for the job, any person who can actually fix and, and rebuild Disney, I think it definitely is Bob Iger. And he, you know, kind of delivered signature Bob Iger kind of news yesterday. You know, lots of good news, lots of nuggets of, you know, inv lots of nuggets of good, good uh, you know, optimistic news for investors to kind of hang on to. Obviously, there is a lot of work that remains to be done, but we do know that there are some real growth di drivers for Disney, whether it's the parks business, that is 70% of Disney's operating income. You know, throwing out about $10 billion in operating profits and cash flow. Uh, so that definitely is, is a huge growth pillar for the company. And then, of course, is streaming and how they're kind of going to manage that whole business. You know, we know that they're in the process of consolidating Hulu. You know, the, the big question is how they're going to manage the ESPN transition and, you know, whether that then that Disney bundled the streaming bundle really becomes the competitor, a true competitor to Netflix. Is rebuilding a euphemism for cop uh, shutting it down in, ter in terms of streamlining certain businesses and getting off selling the rest of it? Yeah, so he seemed to actually walk back a little bit of, you know, the, the linear TV commentary. I know we, we've talked a lot about ABC and some of the other networks kind of being up for sale. Uh, 
but he also did say that there is a huge cost opportunity when it comes to you know those linear networks and so they've actually you know the the charter deal that they recently inked was uh, was kind of a catalyst for them sh- kind of you know <coughs> shutting down a lot of uh, you know the smaller networks uh, networks that they are that they don't consider core and i think that's what they're going to do they are definitely going to streamline the business you're absolutely right uh, lisa i'm not sure when or how the sale is necessarily going to happen but he did uh, iger seemed to suggest that even if a sale doesn't happen right away there are a lot of synergies and there are a lot of cost efficiencies that they can hopefully extract uh, over the next few months agitha this one's a tough one to answer but explore the question with us if you can tom mentioned who's buying if they're selling who's buying where do the buyers come from so it could be private equity. I mean, we know there there have there has been interest from certain parties. Byron Allen, Byron Allen was one who kind of made a, a bid for, uh, for for you know the ABC and some of the networks. Um, you know, again, private equity would always is interested in you know the TV assets because they do. Yes, it is an industry that is in secular decline, but at the end of the day, it does throw out a lot of cash, and that is valuable. Um, so yeah, again, it's a little bit of a wait and watch. Uh, I mean, there have been there has been some chatter about whether the leagues would be interested in kind of going and getting a broadcast asset. I mean, broadcast assets like ABC don't come up for sale very often. So, you know, maybe it is something that that the league can cons- a league can potentially consider for reach. Interesting. Geetha, appreciate the update. You're valuable. We appreciate your time. Geetha Raghunathan there of Bloomberg Intelligence. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Ellen Wall joining us now, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of Saudi Inc. Ellen, to that point... Saudi uh, Saudi's uh, energy minister came out and said it has nothing to do with demand. This is just price manipulation. Demand is still very strong. What did you make of that? Well, uh, I think that he always has a bone to pick with uh, the, uh, as he calls them, the speculators. So I'm not surprised to see him talking about how, you know, this is all a financial thing and it's all due to speculators and it's not a, uh, you know, supply demand issue. Um, but I, I think, you know, obviously there's always you know speculation in the market. And we did see a, a whole lot of, of fund managers dumping uh, oil, opt- uh, oil <coughs> futures um, this past week. So I'm sure he's focused on that. But the fact remains that um, the market is reacting to what it 
thinks is lower demand from China. And um, whether or not that's actually true, I think, remains to be seen. It's always difficult to gauge what exactly is going on in China. Um, what the market's reacting to was news that um, refining margins are soft and, um, you know, Chinese refineries aren't making as much. And so, um, you know, they're interpreting that as weak demand. Now, how does that translate into whether China reduces its imports? And, and there was uh, some indication that they are going to be reducing uh, oil imports. In fact, one of the interesting things that we've seen is that um, Iranian oil exports in uh, September and October have been lower than they were in August. They hit a, a big high in, in August, but now we're seeing declines. And um, there's some speculation yeah. that may be due to sanctions enforcement, but it's much more likely due to declining demand from China. And we've got Saudi Arabia holding a million barrels a day off the market. Uh, I do think Saudi Arabia is in the best position to be able to gauge Chinese demand. And it may be that Yes, right. Chinese demand is looking a bit soft now, but, uh, you know, Abdulaziz bin Salman is looking at the longer picture and the longer game, and he right. sees that that is strong. Ellen, with great respect to your book, which was definitive, we can take these tensions at least back to the Saudi-Yemeni War of 1934. The Ibn Saud family has dealt with this for pushing 100 years, the distance to the south. Give us the modern treatment of how Riyadh and Jeddah look at Yemen today. Yemen is basically a thorn in their side right now. They don't like the Houthis. Um, any group uh, like the Houthis, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, all of those groups, while, while you might think that ideologically there are uh, similarities and, and matchups there, they are essentially a threat to the Saudi monarchy. The Saudi monarchy is like, um, you know, they're, they're like um, the staid old, you know, conservative guy who always votes the same way and always says the same thing for breakfast. Uh, you know, they're they're the the status quo. And any group that's looking to change the status quo, even right. if there are similarities in terms of, say, religious uh, extremism or, or religious ideology, that's seen as a threat. And what's a bit um, disturbing is that despite prolonged military campaigns by the Saudis and uh, the UAE. They haven't been able to dislodge the Houthis from Yemen. In fact, if anything, they're more entrenched. Right. And so uh, I do think that given the fact that the Houthis are at least claiming to be involved in the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, it'll be interesting to see if the Saudis maybe use this as an excuse to really try to get them out of, of Yemen once and for all, or if uh, they'll be right. a bit... Um, embarrassed by somebody else taking them out. And then the conservative guy, as you call Saudi Arabia, their treatment of the shades of Palestine. How do you interpret that, Dr. Walt? Now, that, that is a big question, because what we've got on one hand is King Salman, who is nominally the king of Saudi Arabia. And he is vehemently, I mean, vehemently, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian. I mean, this is a guy who thinks that, you know, the Mossad was responsible for 9-11 and has said so, uh, you know, in public on, on television. So uh, he is a huge barrier to any kind of rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. 
That being said, his son, who's really doing most of the the ruling, the the day-to-day ruling, seems much more inclined to um, use rapprochement with Israel as a way to get what he wants or what he thinks he needs from the United States. And in fact, it seemed like that was uh, about to be a very successful deal before um, this latest conflict derailed all that. Uh, And I don't think that the general um, battle, you know, the general lines that are drawn here are going to change. But I I do think, you know, if if King Solomon wasn't wasn't there, I think we'd see a much faster uh, progression towards a Saudi Israeli normalization. I don't think we're going to see quite what the UAE or Jordan has. But um, I do think that that he that that uh, MBS sees it as a, a beneficial thing, or at least a really good uh, uh, tool to get uh, other things that he needs, like um, support for obtaining nuclear power and uh, military pact with the United States. Just real quick here, how does Saudi Arabia view the production in the U.S. has gotten to a record level amid all of these concerns about demand? I think that they they have kind of come to terms with the fact that the U.S. is going to produce what the U.S. is going to produce, and there really isn't much they can do about it. I think they were um, probably pretty pleased to see that um, there's more consolidation in the oil industry. I think that they see that as good for um, production and for um, companies who are looking at the signs of supply and demand and aren't just pumping, pumping, pumping just to, to stay ahead the way that we saw in right. 2015, 2016. Uh, And so I think that they see this as, you know, this is where it is right now, and it's not always necessarily going to be this high. Ellen, a wonderful brief, particularly those comments on Yemen. Thank you so much. Ellen Wald, Atlantic Council, can't say enough about Saudi Inc. It is absolutely uh, definitive. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.